Okay, today is called um, Fighting for Joy. And uh, first things, what is joy? What is joy and why must I fight for it? And is joy different to happiness? What does it mean to fight for joy? How do I fight and who do I fight? You know, all those questions uh, come out of just that simple title, Fighting for Joy. And uh, I think the first thing I wanted to look at this morning was that we have to understand that the joy we must fight for is probably not the joy that we think we have to fight for or the joy that we're expecting. And so I want to start in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah's way back before the Psalms. Nehemiah chapter 8, um, verse 9 and 10. Uh, you'll probably know these scriptures. Um, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This, that sentence kind of catches me because you realize when you read it that there's something called the joy of the Lord that is separate to my joy. It's not my joy, it's his joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. So, um, there's something about joy, the joy that Nehemiah is talking about, that is totally separate to my own happiness, my own joy, my own understanding of what joy is. And that's what today's about, really. It's about us coming to understand and experience the joy of the Lord. Not our own happiness, not our own joy, but something that is totally different and other than our joy. And to experience it and know it and to actually uh, learn how to, why we need to fight to hold on to it and understand the weapons that the Lord has given us to do that fighting. Um, we live in a world that's shaking don't we? We live in a world that is shaking and uh, the very foundations of our society are crumbling around us. And if we don't understand that there is this joy to be grasped, that there is this joy, this thing that we can hold on to that will strengthen us, that will be our strength, then we're missing a huge part of the power of the Lord that is at work towards us. So um, Ezra and Nehemiah, I love the the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I love uh, when Ezra is described as um, a man who uh, set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach the word of God. And therefore, the good hand of the Lord was upon him. I love that, that the good hand of God was upon him. Why? Because he set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach the law of God, the word of God. And what you read in Nehemiah is Ezra is there in Jerusalem. Nehemiah has come back to Jerusalem because he's heard, hello Ruth, no worries. Oh yes, I know. Hello, hello. I know that middle lady. No, no, no worries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, they're both around at the same time. It's about 584, 586 BC. Um, Nehemiah is in the 
palace of the king, he's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who's the uh, emperor, if you like, the king of a massive empire. And he hears, because some of his brothers, whether they be his Fam, you know, real literal brothers or just uh, brothers in, in the faith, come back to him and report to him in Nehemiah chapter 1 that the walls of the city of Jerusalem are broken down and that the city itself is in a bad state. And um, if we go to Nehemiah chapter 1, just turn back a few pages in your Bible and... Um, the, the walls of the city have been broken down by the Babylonians and uh, they haven't been repaired. And there are some Israelites back in Jerusalem, but the, the, build, the city is in disrepair. Um, so let's just read Nehemiah chapter 1 all the way down to verse 11. Hello, Maureen. No worries. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Um, when you read that first chapter of Nehemiah, it kind of sets the stage for what Nehemiah is going to do. He's going to actually find favor with the king and go back to Jerusalem and, and uh, inspire the people in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And you could sit here today and think, well, what's that got to do with me? You know, that's all about Jerusalem hundreds of years ago, 500 years before Christ. What's that got to do with me? But every, when you read that, you think, you know, we live in this world and we as believers, we who call upon the name of the Lord, we look out at the tragedies in our own lives and in the lives of people around us and we could weep at the broken down walls of the lives of the people that we know and love. You could weep at the sight of the, of the church, the broken down walls of the church, the way that the church is just 
floundering and uh, it's as if there's no defences, there's nothing up in place where it should be. And you could weep at the state of our nation, couldn't you? You could weep at where we're going and what's happening in our nation. And that's really what <laughs> Nehemiah, what I think we can take from Nehemiah, apart from the whole history of it and the and the fact that it, they did go back to Jerusalem, we can take that and understand, okay, what did Nehemiah do? What did he do when he looked at, his, at this place where God had chosen for his name to dwell? And how can I make that part of my own life? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you are sitting here and you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus, then you are a place where he has chosen for his name to dwell. His name is his character. It's who he is. It's everything about him. And you are a person. You, if you've believed in the Lord Jesus, are a person that he has chosen for his name to dwell in. And if you call on him, he will enable you to rebuild the broken down walls of your life. That is the gospel message. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of, salva uh, power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. There is power in the name of Jesus and that power is in you. And if you call upon the Lord Jesus, he has promised promised that he will enable you to rebuild the walls of your life, the walls of your broken down life. Hello, Jenny. No worries. Nehemiah weeps. He weeps at the state of Jerusalem. He loves that city. He knows it's the, ne it's the place where God chose for his name to dwell. It is the place where um, God dwelt with them in the temple. He weeps over the state of it. And not only does he weep, but he decides he's going to do something about it. And really, partly that's what today's about. You know, we can... Um, we can see the state of our own life. We can see the states of people, the lives of people around us. We can weep about it. We can have compassion on them. We can care about that. We can, you know, lift up our voices to the Lord and pray about that. But at the end of the day, God says, I work through you. I work through my people. Therefore, not only are we to weep, and, and see the problems that are going on in our lives and the people of, lives of the people around us in the church, in the nation. We are called to stand up and do something about it on the basis of the fact that God has promised that he will work through us. Now, I don't know what each of our individual calling is. I don't know where God is going to place you, where you are placed. I don't know where you work or your family. or I don't know all of those details, but I know one thing. You call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Is he your savior? Then he will work through you where you are, where you are. And all he requires is for you to say, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Nehemiah looked, he heard about the state of Jerusalem, and he asked God, look at what he says, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, and he prays and asks God, give me favor with the king that I work for, so that he will allow me to go back to Jerusalem. And 
that's what happens. He's allowed to go back, and then we get to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. They've rebuilt the walls. It took them 52 days. Can you believe that? 52 days, that's all, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to build up all the gates. Everybody helped. Women, men, soldiers, nobility, the poor. Everybody did their part. Everybody helped. They, f they faced opposition in many different ways, but they all did their part, and they rebuilt the walls of this city. And um, what Nehemiah, what Ezra says in chapter 8 is, um, uh, go and have, uh, sorry, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the Lord. And then he goes on, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And um, we, that reminded me when I was trying to put this all together and think about it of what Jesus says at the end of John chapter 15. Do you remember what he says? John 15 verse 11. Somebody flip over to John chapter 15 verse 11. See, when I say that the joy of the Lord is not our joy, if you don't already know that, you should be saying, well, well what do you mean? How do you know that? What, what's that about? You know, because you should question everything, everything that anybody says. We should be questioning to see if we can back that up in Scripture. John chapter 15, verse 11. These things, this is Jesus speaking. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy might be made full. Jesus makes a separation between his joy and my joy. And he says that he has spoken things to them so that his joy will be in them. And because his joy is in them, their own joy will be made full. I want to know what his joy is. I want to know what the joy of Jesus is. I don't want just my own joy. Because my own joy goes up and down and up and down like this. You know, one minute I'm full of joy and the next minute I'm in despair and I don't want that for my life. I want to live on a level which is in the joy of Jesus Christ. I want to live in his joy. I want to know his joy because he says that his joy is my strength. It's my strength. I want that strength. I want that strength. He said uh, in John 15, I've told you these things. And actually, if you went back to John chapter 13 and read all the way through John 17, this is Jesus' few days with his most intimate friends. In John 13, he draws away from the crowds. He knows he's going to his death. And he takes the 12 disciples into the upper room and he starts to teach them real intense, intimate stuff about what will happen after he's gone. At the end of chapter 13, after washing their feet, Judas will leave because he can't stand to hear what he's hearing. And he leaves and goes out and betrays him. So now there's 11. And these 11 men with Jesus spend the next couple of days. And he talks to them in the upper room. They go out of the upper room. They start to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they walk through vineyards. And in John chapter 15, they come into a vineyard. And he talks about the fact that he is the true vine. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. That's what he says. And he goes on through all of this. He's told them in chapter 14, when I go, I will send the Spirit and he will bring to your remembrance everything that I have said. And then into the, when he's walking down towards Gethsemane, he's in the vineyard and he says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. You can't do anything without me. Stay attached to me, abide in me. And then after all of this, He says, but I've told you these things so that my joy will be in you. My joy will be in you. When do you think the Spirit might bring to your remembrance the things that Jesus said? John 14, it's about verse 16, is it? 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, if you read John 15 verse 11, and he says, I have told you these things so that my joy will be in you. Really, all of us should go back and say, okay, well, where did he start with these things? These things, what are these things? He started at the beginning of chapter 13. These things I have told you. And then, you know, I love to write lists. Look, that's just, where is my list? Oh, I've lost it now. (laughs) I write lists of what are those things? Because I want to know every word of every sentence of those things that he told me will be, it will enable me to have his joy. So when do you think the Holy Spirit might bring to your remembrance, this is a question you can answer, when do you think the Holy Spirit might bring to your remembrance the fact that uh, Jesus' joy is available to you when you're feeling rubbish and you have no joy of your own? when you have no joy of your own. I could cry when I think about it. You should be crying. You should be crying because Jesus says, my joy will be in you and your joy will be made full. Why do you need your joy made full? Because life is hard. It's difficult because it's hard to live in a broken down body and a broken down home and a broken down life. It's hard to live in that life. So what do you need when, when, when the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance one of the things Jesus said? He is doing that specifically for you to have the joy of the Lord and your joy to be filled up, made full. When do you think you might need... Um, his peace, peace I give you, not as the peace I leave with you, not my peace I give to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. When might you need his peace? When your life is shaking all about, when the very foundations of your life are crumbling, when everything you have known starts to disappear and you end up standing on ground that is moving beneath your feet and you're wondering, where am I going and what am I doing and how will I make my way through this? Jesus says, his spirit brings to you his peace. Remember this, my peace I give to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and your joy made full. See, that's the thing. You know, you're just hearing all the time. We are hearing a sailing against us all the time. This is just an old book. Why would you want anything in this book? 
And I'm telling you now, this book is life. It's life. And it will give you what you need because the Holy Spirit will make it real in you. Just read it. Make a list. Go home and make a list. John 13 to John 17. Write out every single thing. These things I have said to you that my joy might be in you and your joy made full. Your joy is not it. If you have to depend on your joy, oh my goodness, you're in major trouble. Because your joy is not strong enough or big enough or full enough. Your joy is dependent on circumstances and everything else in your life. His joy is set. How can I say that? Why is his joy set for eternity? Why is his joy there and available? Why is it your strength? That's a question. Because <laughs> he says, because he never changes, because he has already lived and died and been resurrected and is at the right hand of the throne of God forever and ever and ever, the God-man. And everything that he is, he gives to you. You are his child. And he has promised you are in him and he is in you. Lay hold, lay hold, lay hold. That's what today's about. It's about how do we understand this joy. Understand that there is this joy to be had. There is this joy to be had that no one in the world who doesn't know Jesus will ever comprehend. Now, if this is all true, if it's all true, then it seems to me that the enemy of our soul will be at great effort to distract us from this truth. He will spend every waking moment, I'm sure he's awake all the time, he will spend every waking moment trying to deceive us into thinking that we have to keep building up our own joy. We have to be happy, clappy Christians. Do you know what I mean? We have to raise the arms and just, oh, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? And, you know, we have to be like that. We have to manufacture our own joy. Because as soon as Satan can get you thinking that you have to do it, you're finished. You're done. Because you can't. You cannot do it. So, why is it important that we understand about the Lord's joy? Why is it important? Because it's available to us and... Yes, yes. It's how he wants us to live. Why? Gives us our strength. Yes, we'll get into that strength in a minute, Jane. Yeah, thank you. What else? Freedom. Yeah, what else? Why are you on the planet? Why didn't you get zoomed up like, you know, Scotty? Or you probably, did you watch Star Trek? You know, when you get pushed up to the, I haven't watched it for years, but that's what they used to do, didn't they? So. Beam me up, Scotty. Thank you. I couldn't think of the phrase. So why has that not happened to you? You believed in the Lord Jesus. That's what it's all about, isn't it? What? Something for us to do. What's for us to do? Maureen, right? Maureen, yeah. So what are we going to do? 
<laughs> we are. We're going to tell other people. Yeah. We're going to tell other people about him. Why would we do that? Yes. But what happens when we start to tell other people? What happens when we start to believe the stuff that we read? What happens? Yes, 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 yes. All good, all good. But what's the underlying reason that we're still on the planet? To glorify God. To glorify God. Jesus said everything he did, he did to glorify God. So, for you and I then, why would it be important that we understand that Jesus' joy, the joy of the Lord is our strength, that we would start to investigate that and find out about that and lay hold of that? Why is that important? Because it glorifies God. Because when you lay hold of the joy of the Lord, when you know it's real and it's there and you want it, that in itself glorifies God. It glorifies God. One of the um, most amazing things, I think, in Scripture is that as we live for the glory of God, we receive our own joy. And as we receive our own joy we realize that's not enough. I want the joy of the Lord. And so we continue. It's like this, it's like this stone that rolls down the mountain, you know. What is it? No, it isn't like the stone that rolls down the mountain. You should all say, no, the rolling stone gathers no moss. <laughs> so it's the wrong example. I want the snowball rolling down the mountain, you know, that's gathering and gathering and gathering and gathering and all of it, all of it. Our desire to glorify our God, our desire to know the joy of the Lord, our desire to live in the truth of that, all of it glorifies God. And as you glorify God, everyone in this room who knows the Lord Jesus wants to glorify God. You may not know how to do it, and you may not do it very often in your own thinking, but you want to do it, don't you? And if you don't want to do it, go home. You shouldn't be here. <laughs> not really, not, not straight away. When you want to glorify God, that glorifies God. It glorifies God that you want to glorify God. It glorifies God that you believe that there's joy. There's the joy of the Lord. You believe it because he says it. Therefore, you have already glorified God. And as you start to understand it and experience it and grow in the truth of it and lay hold of it, you glorify God if you don't get out of bed. That's wonderful. Don't you think that's wonderful? <laughs> we think about glorifying God as things we do. We always think about things we do. We, the Christians, we think about things we do. I do do this and I don't do that. That makes me a, a glorifying God Christian. You know, I go to church on Sunday. I read my Bible every morning. I pray at least five minutes every day. Therefore, I'm glorifying God. It's the things we do. I help my neighbor, I give to this, I do this, I do that. We think about glory, glorifying God in terms of what we do. And the whole Bible says, you can't do enough to glorify God. Give up trying. Trust that Christ has glorified God. And he is giving you all of the doing and all of the righteousness and all of the holiness that he accomplished and live in that. Live in that. So, as I said, go back to Satan. What's the first thing he's going to do when you hear this today? You're going to have a cup of coffee in about half an hour or so. 
what's he going to do? Going to go out there. He's going to try and mess it up. So how will he do that, Ruth? Yeah, yeah. How will he do that? The first thing he's going to say is, I mean, really? Is she really right? I mean, Star Trek and going down a mountain. and it, Can that really be true? And that will start in your head. It will start in your head. Can it really be true that you don't have to do anything? You don't have to do anything? You could actually stay in bed all day and glorify God? Can that really be true? And that's what he does. He starts to get you to disbelieve, to disbelieve the words of Scripture. Look at our church. Look at the church in this country, in the Western world. Look at the church and think about what do they think? What is the way that Satan has attacked the church? Forget the sin. I know it's hard, but just forget the sin for a minute. Forget all your individual things. Think about what has Satan done effectively to the Western church in the last 100 years, 150 years. He has rubbished this book. He has told us that we don't need the old words of this book, that there's a massive load of programs and missions and ministries and all of this stuff that you need to be involved in and you don't have time to read the book. I mean, what, you're going to sit around and read a book all day? This is what Satan has done. And this is what we've believed. We've believed it. At varying levels, we've believed it. So, can I get them to disbelieve? Can I get them so preoccupied with distractions and good works that they won't know that there's something called joy, the joy of the Lord? That they won't know that the peace that Jesus gives and brings is totally different to the peace of the world. They won't know that and therefore they won't ever access it. Jesus said in John 16:33 um, take courage in the world in the world in this world you will have tribulation but take courage i have overcome the world now put that together with the peace that he is leaving and the joy of the lord that is your strength live in the world you live in this world you live in the world where jesus lived and he's saying to you, take courage. Take courage. Why? Because I'm going to give you the strength to overcome the world because I'm going to do this and you're going to, I'm going to give you this and send you off on your way with a suitcase full of courage and you're going to go out and be able to fight off all invaders. No, he doesn't say that. He says, take courage. I have overcome the world. I have already overcome the world. Past tense, I have overcome the world. Why are you going to take courage? Because Jesus has already overcome the world. Praise God, it's already done. He has already defeated Satan. He has already defeated the world. He has already silenced sin. He has already done that. Live in the truth of what he has done. Live in the truth of what he has done. There's the fight. There's the fight. There's the fight to hold on to the reality that he has already done it all. And you must only lay hold of that. It's hard. It's hard. Because 
we have to fight to believe it. You remember the, I always, when I first read that, you know, I was first a Christian and I read that about the man, you know, Jesus meets him on the road and he says, come back and heal my daughter or my son, I can't remember which one, and, um, and Jesus says something about faith and he says, Lord, I believe, forgive my unbelief or help my unbelief, that's me, <laughs> that's my life. I spend loads of time in the Bible, but that's me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because there's so much I have to fight to hold on to. I have to fight to hold on to the fact that Jesus has done it all and that his grace is more than enough for me. I have to fight to hold on to the fact that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone and the new has come. I have to fight for that, that he made him who knew no sin. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. I have to fight to hold on to that because my eyes see the reality of my life. Or the, not reality, you know what I mean. My eyes see the stuff of my life. Now, I have to fight to hold on to the truth of who I am in Christ Jesus. You have to fight for joy. You have to fight for peace. You have to fight to experience those things in the way that God wants you to experience them. And you have to decide today, if you've never thought about it before, from today, I'm fighting for joy. I'm fighting for joy. Every waking moment, I am fighting for joy. Why? Because it will make my joy full and because it will glorify God. In Nehemiah chapter 8, where we began, Ezra's been reading from the law. He's been reading from the, uh, the word of God. And almost certainly, he's been reading from Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Well, 28, 29, and 30. And um, when, he, when you read Deuteronomy 28 and 29, what you're reading is God saying, if you do this to the Israelites, I will bless you. And if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. And then you get to chapter 30, and I think this is what makes them weep. Because you get to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, and God makes um, just the most amazing promise to them. Uh, so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and, you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Can you see what's happened? They are standing in a rebuilt Jerusalem, and they are hearing God's word to them saying, when you return to me, I will have compassion on you, and I will bring you back. And they're weeping. 
they're weeping in Jerusalem. They've just had victory. They've just built the city up. They've built the walls of the city. There's no reason for them to weep. They should be just, you know, hallelujah, praising the Lord. But what they're starting to understand is where they were and what God has done to bring them to where they are now. Now, just take that and look at your own life. If you spend time thinking about where you were, where you were, you could weep at where God has, what God has done for you. Couldn't you? I mean, you could weep. Before you knew the Lord Jesus, I don't know, maybe you were always a, a good person. I don't know. I don't know. I was 40 when I came to know the Lord. I'd lived a lot of life by then. And when I look back on my life, I think, oh, oh, I could weep. I could weep. And I could spend loads and loads of time weeping about all the missed opportunities and all the stuff of my life. And, and you don't have to share that with anybody, but look at your own life and think about the things in your life and think about the things that God has done, that he's forgiven in your life, that he's redeemed in your life, that he's brought you through in your life. Think about your life and think about, and you could weep, couldn't you? And that's what they're doing. They're weeping because they can't they can't believe that a God who is so holy and so righteous and so good would bring them back, would look at them and say, I'm bringing you back. Would look at all that they've done and all that they've been and all the ways they disobeyed him and all the stuff and the hideousness of their life. And yet that God would bring them back and enable them to build up the city walls Think about that with yourself, that that God, that Jesus, that perfect God who is holy and unutterably beautiful and majestic would even for a moment look at you and bring you back. If that doesn't make you weep, go home and ask him to make you weep with that. That that God could look at you today, even after you're a Christian and all the stuff of your life today. All the people that get on your nerves and, you know, have I really got to sit next to her? You know, and it's too crowded in here. Can't they get a bigger place? And, you know, all of the thoughts in your head, all of the, the stuff. And then think about a God who knows everyone and loves you anyway. Think about that God and weep. But you see, the thing is, God doesn't want you to stay weeping. That's what he says to these Israelites. This day is not for mourning. This day is a day of joy. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You don't have to stay weeping. Every single day of your life and all the stuff in it, you can get to bed tonight and you can say to the Lord, I am so sorry. I am just so sorry for everything today. And he will say, you are forgiven, totally and utterly forgiven in Christ Jesus. And you can go to sleep knowing that for that second, you are totally and utterly right with God. And that everything that has gone before is finished. What do you think that might do if you hear that? What do you think you might feel if 
you understand totally, like, well, you do, hopefully, you do. But So, I'll pull that back a bit. So, imagine you're standing and you're weeping because you see the stuff of your life and what it took to get you to where you are and you just can't stand yourself and you're just, you're just weeping and you don't know where to go and you don't know what to do. And then, and then God says through his prophet, today's not for weeping. It's not for weeping, Kim. It's not for weeping, Jenny. It's not for weeping, Ruth. I know all that stuff, but I brought you back. I redeemed you. I forgave you. It is a day of joy. What do you think you might do? You might rejoice. Won't you rejoice? And that's what they do. They go and have a party. They have a party for seven days. They actually keep on having this party for seven days. It's a day of celebration, Nehemiah says, or Ezra says. It's a day to celebrate. Go and uh, drink of this and eat of this and rejoice. Why? Why, is, why are they rejoicing? Yes, and what's he done because he loves them so much for them? Yes, and but specifically what's he done? He's brought them back. He's brought them back. And when they've come back, when they've come back, they've come back why? Why did they actually stay in Jerusalem? Why were they in Jerusalem? Why did they build the walls of Jerusalem? Why? Hey? No, no. No, it's tabernacles actually. But why? Why are they? Re- why have they come back to the city? Why has Nehemiah come back? Why did Ezra go to Jerusalem? Why did they go there? Why did they build the walls? Why? Why? Because they couldn't stand the state of the city. Okay. And so they build it up and God enables them to do it. And then they stand there and Ezra reads from the word of God and they realize how little they deserve to be there and they start to weep. And Nehemiah or Ezra says to them, don't weep, this is a day of joy, a day of rejoicing. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. What joy? Why does God feel joy then? Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Why does God rejoice? Yes. What does, what does uh, I think it's Luke says, there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. What, what causes God to, to feel joy, to rejoice? Our repentance, our understanding more about him or our desire to know more about him, our listening to his word and responding to his word in whatever way it is. I'm sure not all of those Israelites understood everything about Deuteronomy, what they were hearing, but what they knew was God has done this. God has done this. And in their understanding that God had done that, God himself was rejoicing. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says that I rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That's God speaking. I rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Why? Because they understood who God was and what he had done. Okay, so think about it. Think about yourself today. You're in the room. You're listening to the word. We're looking at the word. And slowly or quickly your understanding about God more. You're deciding, I want to know you more, God. That's why you came on a Saturday. You could have stayed in bed, couldn't you? Could have gone shopping, could have done anything. But you came here. Why did you come here? Why? 
because you want to know God more. Do you know what God says? I rejoice over you, Sally, with shouts of joy. I, God, rejoice over you. It's like impossible to fathom. Don't you think that God would rejoice over me, over Mark? That he would rejoice over him, over me, over Maureen, because all we did was turn up on a Saturday and open the book. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. But that's what he says. I rejoice over you when you want to do that. I rejoice. And what do you think that he will do, God will do, when, he's, when you hear that God is rejoicing over you because you're sitting here looking at the book, what does that happen? What happens in you? See, what is this about? This is about God's joy. It's about Christ's joy. It's not about your joy. It's about Christ's joy. These things I have told you that my joy might be in you and your joy made full. Okay, so now you hear God rejoices over you with singing because you've opened the book. What does that do? You want to do more more and it fills you with joy. It fills you with your own joy. It makes your own joy full. Why? Because, oh my goodness, all I did was open the book and God is singing. God is singing. I just can't even say it enough. God is singing, shouting over us. Look at yourself. I mean, it's impossible to believe. I mean, from where I stand. (laughs) No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. But this is what we have to get. We have to get this because it is so wonderful. And Satan will do all he can to stop you believing this. He will do everything he can to bring things in front of you so that you stop believing this. God rejoices over you with shouts of joy. Did you make a decision for him sometime in the last week? Did you choose to do something that you wanted to do something else, but you knew he wanted you to do this thing, so you did that thing? God rejoiced over you with shouts of joy. Did you do the hard thing? Did you do the hard thing that nobody else has done? Everyone else has done the easy thing, but you've done the hard thing. And you're not seeing any reward for that thing. Nothing. You're expecting everything to sort itself out and be wonderful because I chose the right thing. But actually, God's still silent. That's just because you can't hear him. He's singing. Singing. I mean, I can't even get it into my head. It's just too wonderful that he would be... Rejoicing with shouts of joy. (laughs) And they rejoice. They celebrate. Verse 12, it says that it led to their own celebration and they made a great rejoicing. Why? Because they've understood. They have understood. They have listened to the words of God. They have applied it to their own life and they have understood that that joy of the Lord, the joy that God has when you do the simplest things, that has caused them to rejoice. And he says here, that joy is their strength. The word for strength is maot, M-A-O-W-Z in Hebrew, M-A-O-W-Z. And it means fortified place, stronghold, fortress. 
rock defense. So can you see what he's saying? The joy of the Lord is your safe place. The joy of the Lord is your fortress. Run to that joy when you haven't got your own. When your life looks like rubbish, run to the joy of the Lord because that is your fortress. His joy is a place you can run to. Now, don't you think it's incredible the way God does this? You can see exactly the same thing in Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2 and you see exactly the same thing, written in different words, but exactly the same thing. Acts chapter 2, Peter has stood up after the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and he starts to um, preach um, a sermon. And he, he has to tell the crowds that he's not drunk, that it's the Holy Spirit that's been poured out. Um, and he, he preaches this sermon, Acts 2.22. Um, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I'm going to go on to verse um, 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, uh, sorry, I'm going to go on, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preaches this sermon. He uses the Old Testament, which I didn't read, but if you read through those verses, he preaches a sermon based on the Old Testament and he says, this is the Messiah that was promised and you put him to death. You put him to death. But God raised him up again. Now, what do you think those Jews felt when they heard this? Devastated. 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 Look at what they do. Verse um, uh, 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Do you remember the Israelites in the rebuilding of the walls? They are weeping because they've heard the truth about who they were. They've heard the truth about it. that They had disobeyed God, yet he brought them back. That they had, he had allowed them to rebuild this temple. They, have hear, they hear the truth that God is merciful and forgiving and redeeming, and they weep. And that's exactly what happens when Peter preaches this message. You crucified God. You crucified the Messiah. And they're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? They're weeping, pierced to the heart. And what does Peter say? He says, repent um, 
repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself and do you know what has happened what happens when they hear this they repent and they're baptized what do you think the next thing might be that they do just base it on Nehemiah Rejoice, rejoice, they have a celebration. Look at verse, four, um, verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were, look, day by day, continuing, verse 46, with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together, Together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all their people. That word gladness means rejoice. They were rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? Why? Anybody out there? Why were they rejoicing? because they understood the enormity of what God had done for them. It's exactly the same as it was in Nehemiah. They understood, they heard the word of God, and it caused them to see themselves as they truly were. Does that happen with you? When you read the word of God, does it cause you to see yourself as you truly are, as a person who is deserving nothing, as a person who is totally and utterly lost unless God picks you up. Does the word of God cause you to see that about yourself? If it doesn't, you need to ask the Lord, show me the reality of where I would be without your grace. Because that's part of receiving the joy. When you see yourself as you truly are and then you understand what it took for God to bring you to, to where you're going to be or where you are now, if you know what I mean. Then you can go from this weeping, this mourning of, oh God, I was absolutely and utterly lost and now I am totally and utterly found. I am going to glory I am in glory and with glory and going to glory. That's what's happened all through Scripture. That's what's happened, happening. People read, they hear the word of God. They hear the truth about themselves. They hear the truth about God. They can't bear the truth about themselves. And they weep and they say, oh, Lord. And then God says, I rejoice over you. I rejoice over you. And they rejoice and they have parties and celebrate and get together and, and join with one another. And they can't get enough of it. Do you know, this is the honest truth. I want to do this every day of my life. I want to be with people who love God. I want to be with people who love the word. I want to sit down with you and share this and have you share that with me and tell me, do you know, I prayed this the other day and this is what God did and, and blah, 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 you know, and on and on and on. I want to be with people who love God. Why? Because that makes me love God more. 
I want to rejoice and celebrate the reality of who God is and what he has done. And I want to do that with everybody else. And if you don't want to do that, go home. No, I don't mean that. (laughs) If you don't want to do that, ask the Lord. Help me to want to do that. Help me to want to move from sitting in front of my TV or in front of my iPad or whatever it is and reading rubbish on Facebook or on this or that or the other thing. Help me to want to be with people who want to be with you. That's what we have to do. We have to be with one another often because we cannot do this on our own. What is the result to people? They hear the truth about themselves. They see the truth about God. They are in awe of this God. They want to go with other people and celebrate. They want to celebrate. Do you know, if if there is anything this world needs, it is a church that celebrates. They need, unbelievers don't need you to bang them over the head with the law. They don't need that. They don't need to be told all about their sin. They can't understand their sin, for goodness sake. How could they ever understand sin until they know who God is? It's no point in telling people about their sin. It's no point in banging them over the head where you need to do this, Chris, and you need to do that. And if you don't do this, God is going to do this to you. It's like, who wants that God? We need to be celebrating the reality of our salvation and the wonder of the joy of the Lord. There is our strength. There is my safe place. There is the place that I run to when I can't find a scrap of joy in my own life. I can go to his joy and find a miracle. A miracle. Second Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be finishing any minute because... Well, we won't be finishing, but we'll be finishing the first session. Um, 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Um, Just to kind of round it up, we need to fight for this joy because it doesn't happen, it just doesn't happen. You have to fight for it. Um, And Paul will actually say something very similar in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in in your faith you are standing firm. Paul has this, what he's saying to the Corinthians is, we have to work together for joy. We have to work together. That's what I was talking about when I said that we come together. I want to be with people who want to be with God because that feeds the joy and that helps me to understand the joy. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul will say something very similar. Um, Philippians 1, 25, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul knows that he's staying with them. He thinks he, he could die, and he doesn't mind dying. Actually, he wants to die. He wants to go and be with the Lord. But he knows that he's still got a job to do, and that is to help them grow in their joy. Um, He's a worker with the Corinthians, with the Philippians for their joy so that their joy will increase. How will their joy increase? What does Paul do in all his letters when he goes everywhere? What does he do? See, yeah, he teaches them. What does he teach them? 
He teaches them about God, about Jesus. He teaches them about God. He doesn't go and say, well, you know what? What I do to try and be happy is I have a large glass of red wine and I put my feet up and I just let the whole world flip by. You know, just think happy thoughts. He hasn't got a program, a 10-step program. You know, be happy. You need to get up in the morning. You need to have a good shower. You need to eat healthy. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do the other thing. And then you'll be happy. You'll have joy. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of that. He says to them, yes, persecution will probably come. You will suffer if you're a Christian. But there's joy. How's there joy? Because this is who God is. And he spends the whole of his letters saying, this is who God is. Every letter he writes, if you look at it, Ephesians is a classic example. Six chapters of Ephesians. The first three, he says, this is who God is. This is what he's done. Now on the basis of that, go and live your life. See what I mean? It's all about who is God? What has he done? Where were you? Where are you now? Understand this. Understand about Jesus. Understand about who he is. Understand about who God is. Understand that you are, he is for you. He is for you. And everything he does is for you. For you, not against you. Romans 8. If God is for us, who could be against us? That's real. That's real. He is for you. He's on your side. And Paul does that. He tells them, this is how I'm fighting for your joy. This is how I'm helping you grow in joy. I'm telling you about God and about Jesus. Why will that help them grow in their joy? Why will it help their joy grow if he tells them about Jesus or about God? Know him more. Because Jesus said, These things I have told you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy made full. Jesus told them about himself. He told them about who he was, and about what his life was, and about what he'd come to do, and how he was going to do it, and what they would be doing afterwards. And he knew that would be his joy in them, and their joy made full. So Paul takes that. He takes that. And he says, Well, if Jesus told them those things so that his joy would be in them and their joy made full, I'm going to tell them those things. So ask yourself the question. Look at the person next to you if you know them. (laughs) If you don't, say hello. Okay, look at the person next to you and say, okay, this person looks like they might need a bit of joy. (laughs) Okay. So, okay, that's enough joy. That's enough joy. So, what will you do to increase that person's joy? You're going to tell them, well, you look so great today. I love that dress. I love that. Oh, my goodness. And your makeup is so beautiful. Well, not to the men, obviously, but, you know. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell them? See, you're getting all unruly now. Come on. What are you going to tell the person sitting next to you to help them with joy? You're going to say, do you know you are a person for whom Christ died? Do you know you are a person who is loved beyond your wildest imagination? 
Do you know that you are going for a place that is so glorious we can't even describe it? Do you know that every day of your life, Jesus is right there with you? That's what I want you to tell me. I want you to tell me those things. Because sometimes I forget them. And sometimes I can't hold on to them. Because my life is too difficult. And, I, and they slip through my fingers. That's why we need each other. We need each other to remind each other of who we are in Christ, who God is, and who we are in Christ Jesus. I haven't reached the end of session one, but I think that might have to be the end of session one. So, um, yeah. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for this first session. Thank you that you are a great and wonderful God. Thank you for Jesus. And, uh, yeah, Lord, I pray that our conversations in the coffee break will be about you and that you will be glorified as we talk about you and as we find our joy in you. And I know that you will, for you tell us that in your word. So we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.